Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. All right, my friends, then let's move into Footsteps of Messiah on page 190, I think we left off at. And we're discussing the purposes of the 77s. This is the timeline given to Israel before the Messianic Kingdom starts. Because Daniel thought the Messianic Kingdom would happen after the Babylonian exile. And God came through angel Gabriel to tell him, no, there's 490 prophetic years before the kingdom will start because God is going to accomplish six different things. Now, I believe from last week we did uh, the finished transgressions and to make them into sins. I think we did the first two. Okay, so then we need to start on letter C on page 190, which is to make reconciliation uh, for iniquity or atonement. That's That's kind of the idea. So again, in Israel's 490 prophetic years, for, and we'll talk about when this is issued. It's issuing to the, the decree for Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. There will be 490 prophetic years to to make sure these things are accomplished. Well, the the atonement, or to make reconciliation for iniquity, has to do with the cleansing of Israel. Israel must be cleansed. And it must remove three things, as Fruchtenbaum notes. National sin for rejecting Messiahship the sinning of day, uh, the daily sins, and third, the dealing with the sin nature itself. Okay, so that's what needs to happen in Israel. Well, here's the question. Has this ever happened with Israel? That they had a national conversion, that the daily sins of Israel were wiped away, and that uh, and that was atoned for, and that the sin nature was dealt by in and of itself. Well, you look through history, and you can only conclude one thing. No, it has not. Since it has not, and this is an important point about all these issues that we're looking at, that means the kingdom has not started. You cannot say that the kingdom has started. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Because in the false church, in the Laodicean church, the apostate church, many of those churches already say the kingdom has started. New Apostolic Reformation in the charismatic wings up there in Redding, California, in Bethel. It's kingdom now stuff. They're in the kingdom. And the prophecies and prophets and apostles are all jumping all over the place. And you have Mike Bickle and Todd Bentley and all these false prophets running around loose in the charismatic wing of Christianity, and they're all saying the kingdom has started. And therefore, they use kingdom promises and put them in for now, like prosperity and things like that, which is not promised in the church age. So you see the implications of this, how important it is to understand that the kingdom has not started because he hasn't dealt with Israel yet. Ah, but wait, I know what you're written to say. The key is, then, understanding Israel, isn't it? Because what does 
all these New Apostolic Reformation people, Dominionists, Kingdom Now, all have in common with Israel. What do they all say about Israel and the church? Israel's done, and what we have done is superseded them, supersessionism, and that the church has now replaced Israel. Hence, that's the narrative for we're in the kingdom, kingdom has started, and God is do, working on those promises made to Israel in the church. If you get Israel wrong, you will foul up everything. That is why Israelology is extremely important in your theology. You have to have that right. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And that's what happens in the apostate church. They don't ever get Israel right. Because these things, what Daniel's saying, has to happen in the people of Daniel. The Jews. We're not Jews. And don't let anyone tell you you're a spiritual Jew in, in the sense that you incorporate the promises of Israel. That's wrong. Galatians will mention spiritual Jews. He is talking about the remnant Jews. He's not talking about Gentiles. We are never referred to as Jews. We're the church. Yes. British Israelism. I know, I know where you're coming from. British Israelism. Okay, so what their, their premise is, they believe that the ten lost tribes, which got assumed into Assyria, went up into Britain. And that's where they were at. And that it, uh, the kingdom then transferred to like, guys like Charlemagne and in France, and that's where Israel was centered and is today and then comes to America. Well, sure. And because it doesn't, it, it doesn't take the scriptures for what it says and, and spiritualizes texts to make the church or Gentiles replace the Jews. It's, it's classic replacement theology. But, um, what scriptures say is what happened to the Jews, the ten, the ten tribes, is they got intermingled with the Assyrians and produced what's called the Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jew and half Assyrian. So, they look at what, that theory, they look at the common English person today and they say, he's a Jew. And it's like, genetically, there's no way. You can test them genetically. They're not Jewish. And it's just, it, it's so off the chart crazy. It, it would be hard to believe it, but yet people do. And I can't, I can't for the life of me get it. Um, because all you have to do is history and look at, they did not travel up into England. There's no archaeology for that. And, um, but yeah, it's alive and well, just like replacement theology. It, the cults, all replacement theology. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists all believe they have replaced Israel. All of them. And so when you look at their eschatology, it's all fouled up every time. So again, this you might understand this, but this has huge implications of protecting you from false views. So when uh, Seventh-day Adventist comes to you and tells you, well, I keep the dietary laws and we're the new Israel, you know he's bogus. You just know he's not a Jew. And the Seventh-day Adventists have not replaced Israel. It's crazy. So, anyway, I say that just, it keeps us in foundations with the Bible. Okay, so the next thing to do, letter D, is to bring in an age of righteousness. 
So the 490 prophetic years are not only to cleanse Israel of her sin, have a national conversion, but to usher in an age of righteousness. Now, in your in the, the text, it'll say it, to, to bring in everlasting righteousness, or more literally, to bring in an age of righteousness. The Hebrew uses the word olam. And many times, olam, you, you, though, in your English, will interpret that as eternity, or from everlasting to everlasting. That's the wrong implications of the word, the Hebrew word olam. Olam doesn't mean that. It means age. Without a pre, it's fuzzy on the beginning of the age, and it's fuzzy on the end of the age, is what the word olam is, 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 is giving. So here's the deal. Before John, in the book of Revelation, put down how long the Messianic age would last, most Jews were uncertain of how long the, the, the Messianic age would last. So many, many of them say, well, it will go on forever. And they would conclude that. And, and many things in the Hebrew would say, olam, olam, olam. But it all, it just meant that it will go on for a determined amount of time, that age. And then, John comes in 95 AD, and through the prophetic word, puts a defining mark on the beginning and the end of the Messianic age after the 490 prophetic years. And what did he say? How long would that age last? 1,000 years. Until John, no prophet ever knew how long the age would last. And John says it six times so that you didn't miss it, that he's not allegorizing anything or anything. He says, literally, it's a thousand years after the 490 prophetic years of Israel being accomplished. So, when will this age of righteousness be brought in? At the second coming. Or at least, let's talk about after the 75-day interval. I'll talk about that later another time. But after that, the Messianic age will go for a thousand years. And that's what this age of righteousness is. But this is after the 490 prophetic years of Israel. So my question is, and you, are, you may already know the answer, has the 490 years been completed yet? No. So anybody that tells you, oh, we're in the kingdom now, we're in the messianic age, we're, we're living the kingdom days, these are the days of Elijah, no, you're not. And that's what they try to do, especially in the charismatic wing, saying we have modern-day prophets and all this other stuff, and then they attach the word of faith theology into prosperity gospels because they use kingdom passages. So we're not in that age. And a lot of Christians are buying into this. It's, it's absolutely crazy. There's another movement I want to make you aware of, <clears throat> and you may not pick up on it because a lot of mainstream evangelical churches believe this. It is the theology of George Ladd. Already, not yet. If you hear a pastor say, already, not yet, he is using the theology of George Ladd, which actually comes out of Britain, which means that the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it will be fulfilled in the future. My friends, that is a grave error. The kingdom has not been inaugurated because it's supposed to inaugurate an age of righteousness. So if you say already not yet, it implies righteousness has begun, and it has not. We see an ever-increasing sin happening in the world. And they'll say, well, Christ is on David's throne. No, he is not. 
He is not on, uh, on the throne. And think about what you're saying. It's now focusing people on the here and now instead of our great hope. which That's where the focus is supposed to be. Future, future, future. If you get focused on the here and now, Paul will say you get myopic. You will actually, oh no, sorry, not Paul, Peter. Peter says if you focus in on the here and now, you will be myopic and you will blind yourself. If you read Peter. Now, so Peter will focus hope forward, forward. And what kingdom now theology, or we're, we're already not yet, whatever you say, you start worrying about your daily life and trying to build your kingdom here without Christ. The kingdom does not come without Messiah. And he's not here. Um, and so, guess what they'll do? Guess what the political implications are then? Because this actually works into political application. Because Christians are trying to practice this. How do you think, if you believe you're in the kingdom, or the kingdom has already started, and that that the, the, the world will get better through your actions and your efforts, and then Jesus will come back when you have made everything right. What do you think it does to your political actions? I just... What's that? Okay, there's that part of it, yep. What, what do you think they'll do? What is involved in that, like restitution to who and different people, people groups? What do you think they'll start practicing politically? Social gospel. Hence, social gospel is social justice. They will latch on to social justice movements. And what you will find, like you're finding out today, there's a wing of Christianity that wants to Christianize America. And I, I you would, you would say you would disagree with that? No, I would love to live in a, in a, in a great, uh, great Christian environment. But I don't have any thought in my mind that I can change someone's mind who is not a Christian. That I can do enough good deeds to Christianize America and then everyone will come on my side after I Christianize them. I'm not saying that we can't be salt and light. I don't want you to misunderstand that. That we, you, you know, you need to be active and, 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 and warning people, voting. And it doesn't mean that. It means that if I become some revolutionary, that I'm going to go out and eradicate the sex slave industry, or I'm going to eradicate this industry, I'm going to eradicate this industry, that eventually I will Christianize it with the hopes that Jesus will come back once I do. You're out of your mind. You're absolutely out of your mind if you think that. But that's what a bunch of Christians are thinking now. Guess what that train is, uh, or that train on that track is on? It is on the same track as the Marxist communist who wants to do social justice. They call it social gospel, but social justice, they're running to the same thing. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing what train they put themselves on. Or progressives, or whatever you want to call them. This came to my mind. Let, let, let me let me let me give you a, a thing about about Israel real quick. This is funny. This is funny, but it's sad. We're talking about Israel, and that everything is pertaining. They they are the key to understanding prophecy, and you all know that. I'm speaking to the choir here. They are the key to understanding and unlocking everything prophetically. Okay, and you see the importance of it. This is this is so funny. You see now in the church an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel movement now. That if you start talking about Israel prophetically, they hate you. They get hostile toward you. They get angry with you. 
um, that oh, you, that church is now Israel and all that, that rhetoric. Okay, this is amazing. In the LGBT community, they had a rally and celebrating, you know, their their freedom they believe they're having and their way of life. Okay, there was a a group of LGBT Jews that came from Israel to go to this rally. And do you know what happened to those LGBT Jews at the rally? The LBG, LBD, LGBT, whatever, um, non-Jews persecuted their own LGBT Jews. And they were, they were chanting, get Israel out of the land, free Palestine, to their own group, anti-Semitic to their own group. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. No, I think uh, it was, I can't remember, it was somewhere here in America, I believe, and these, these Jews were from Israel, and, and the LGBT went nuts on them. I told them to get get out of here, and you can see this online. And uh, they, these LGBT people had Palestinian rags around their necks, and telling these Jewish gay and lesbians to get out of there. I find that amazing. That even in their own group, they're anti-Semitic to Israel. Wow, blew me away. <coughs> no, no, they don't care to know the history. Anyway, let's go to letter E. It says this, the next thing that God's doing with the prophetic years of Israel is to cause a cessation of prophecy. So in the 77s, it'll say, and this is, this is all Daniel 9, these little passages right here, to seal up vision and prophecy. Vision means oral prophecy, something like what, uh, you know, Elijah and Elisha did. And prophecy means written prophecy. To seal it up, to shut it up, to cause a cessation of it. So what this means is that once the second coming happens, all prophecies are fulfilled. And then Jesus ushers in the kingdom. That's what that means. And so things are left unfulfilled, and that's what we that's what we're discussing a lot of times, the fulfillment of this prophecy. But all prophecies will cease. And so the interesting thing about this, and I think I made this point last week, no prophecies in the Old Testament and up to the book of Revelation, if you think that in your mind, New Testament up to the book of Revelation, excluding the book of Revelation, and even before that, no prophecies dealt with eternity. They all dealt with the Messianic age. And that that's amazing. And it was, wasn't until John, until Revelation 21 and 22, that John gives a glimpse of what eternity looks like. You only have two chapters in the Bible that deal with eternity. That's amazing. And so, when it says to seal up prophecy, it is referring to the entire, almost entire Bible predictions about what the age will look like. So anytime contextually you go into Isaiah, Jeremiah, or any of the prophets, or any predictions that Moses made in the first five books, it is all concerning the kingdom age. All of it. No prophets were allowed to see beyond the messianic age. 
That should help you in your interpretive passages with the Old Testament and prevents you from thinking anything further than that age that even applies today. Anyway, let's go to letter F. Uh, the next thing that will be done is to anoint the most holy place. This is what, why Israel must complete this in 490 years. It says to, in, the, in the scriptures, it'll say to anoint the most holy. Basically, this is talking about the temple. Now, what temple? This is not Herod's temple, Zerubbabel's temple. It is definitely not the tribulation temple, which will be the third temple. It is talking about a fourth temple that will actually be built by Messiah himself. And your reference to this, you write it off to the side, is Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Zechariah 6, 12 through 13 references that it is Messiah who will build the Messianic temple. Now, if you want to look at the details of the Messianic temple, you need to turn to Ezekiel 40 through 48. In those eight chapters, Ezekiel details what this messianic temple looks like. and <clears throat> gives you the indication of where Jesus is and where the throne is and where the waters go out. But the idea is that when Messiah comes, after this 490 prophetic years, he will build a temple. And most people are perplexed by that. Why would he build a temple? Because it's Israel. He's always dealt with Israel with a temple. And <clears throat> there will be a reinstitution of sacrifices again. And uh, there will be a reinstitution of the uh, the priests. It will not it'll be the from the line of Zadok that will be the priesthood. And there are David will be there in the portico, King David, and it will be on a platform city type of thing. Yes, Tom. You're right. Yeah, because in the church, you know, we we um, we don't do sacrifices, obviously. I think the, the, our best understanding of this, and when you study the, the millennial kingdom, is number one, we're dealing with Israel, so he's always dealt with Israel with a temple. But two, with the sacrifices, you have to look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament and what they did, and then you have to understand the sacrifices for the, the, the millennial kingdom to get a better understanding. The Mosaic sacrifices, many of them, were symbolically pointing forward to what Messiah would do with his sacrifice. They, they would point forward. In the kingdom age, they point backwards. And it's like a testimony, Tom was saying, this, what is happening to this lamb or the goat or the bull is what he did for us thousands of years ago. And it points backwards as a symbolic reminder of it. But there also are, are sacrifices, if you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, that are efficacious for cleansing. And that was the same for Israel as well, that they had to do certain sacrifices for, for cleansing in order to minister and be in the tabernacle. And so there actually are <coughs> some sacrifices that are efficacious. Now, what we mean by efficacious is it makes them ritually pure. It does not mean that it makes them safe. It never did in the Old Testament. You still had to come saved by faith. But to approach God, you have to have certain 
sacrifices of efficacious, of purification before you approached him. And again, it all pointed forward to the cleansing of Messiah. And, and this is because, number one, you're on earth, and these are earth dwellers that made it to the, 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 the kingdom, or sorry, the tribulation, and are now in the kingdom. They're still in their mortal bodies. They still contain sin. And because they contain sin in their bodies and have a sin nature, they cannot approach Christ willy-nilly. Hence, the, the contrast of the millennial temple versus the new Jerusalem, what does it say about the new Jerusalem and our access to Christ? There is no temple. And because we are glorified, you have direct access to Messiah because you do not possess a sin nature. It, it, that is part of it. It's to, to look back to what he did. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, all the Gentiles will be aware, because they have to send representatives to him, of watching what will happen to these bullocks. And these bullocks are slayed to, to tell them that's what happened to him. And the story of the cross will be told, but backwards. You know, like we're doing now. We look back to the cross. And they will look back even further. And absolutely. The other thing is to tell the Gentiles, you cannot approach him. You cannot approach him just the way you want to approach him. Because you've got to remember, we're on a time now where God is not on this earth. But when he is, he still keeps people away who are in sin. Or at least, even if they're saved, that have sin natures, you will not come close. Look what he did with Moses. There were certain people that could come close, and Moses became the closest, but he still had you kept your distance. Otherwise, you'd die. And that's one of the reasons is, if a Gentile or even a Jew gets too close, they will die. Because the sin nature cannot take being in holiness, and it will actually kill them. So there has to be a certain distance with the human dwellers. Now, does that happen when you're glorified? No. No, because that's why there's no need for the temple in the New Jerusalem. So we have direct access to them. So there's a certain distance people must have with Messiah, because he's holy. Glorified body, you have full access. But with a no glorified body, no flesh will inherit the kingdom. You cannot get close to him like that in your flesh and be right there, because you'll die. You'll, you'll die. This is why Moses was veiled. He couldn't see God in his full glory. It'd, it'd, it'd kill him too. And I think that you have to understand that even about Messiah. Messiah is Yahweh, and he would kill you. If you're that close. This is because of the holiness. So I think that's one of the, the, the several reasons why you see it. it I, and I don't know all the reasons because there's a lot of gaps in there that we don't know. But the best we can tell, Tom, those are some of the main reasons for those, uh, those, those sacrifices. Again, people are saved the same way. It's always by faith. It's always by faith. But in that administration, that's how you relate to, to Christ. Ezekiel 40 through 48 talks about the millennial temple. And then Zechariah 6, 12 through 13 specifically says Messiah will, will build this temple. So that's presumed that in the 75 day interval before the Messianic kingdom that Christ builds the temple. And it's on a platform. It's not like it is today. Jerusalem will be the highest mountain on earth. It will be cut off on the top. A portion of it will be devoted to the temple. A portion of it devoted to Jerusalem and where the priests live and their fields. 
but it's the largest mountain on planet Earth at that time. And the Shekinah glory will be manifested in five different manifestations around the area. One over the top, one around the wall, the Shekinah glory coming from the temple, the Shekinah glory from, coming from Christ, and then I, I can't remember the rest, the Shekinah cloud covering all of the land of Israel. So you will see five manifestations of the Shekinah as it protects Israel, protects Messiah's platform, and protects where Messiah is, is in his holiness. And everyone will, in the world will be able to see this. So that's why it has to happen. Okay, let's go to number three then. And those are the reasons why the 490 prophetic years must happen. Let's do the starting point of the 77 so we understand the timeline. And this is found in Daniel 9.25a. Uh, it says, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the command to restore. So there is your timeline of when the 490 prophetic years start. And, and you continue on and down there, if you read there, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, so that's important, to rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus was predicted by Isaiah 150 years before Cyrus even existed. His name was given, and this individual was said, and he's a Persian, would be the one who lets Israel go back and issued that call. Well, as Isaiah had predicted, it happened. Cyrus came into power, Persia had taken over Babylon, and Cyrus allowed Israel to go back. And you can see this in Ezra, um, as far as the exiles going back. Isaiah 44, 26 through 28 predicted this. 40, uh, Isaiah 45, 1 through 4, and verse 13 predicted this. And this happened around 457 BC. So that's when it kicked in. That's when it started. Now and then what Daniel does is he breaks it up into segments and says this 490 years is broken up into prophetic segments. And he goes, and, and so number four, the first 69 sevens, he's going to talk about this a little bit, and he says, and to, to build Jerusalem unto or until the anointed one or Messiah, the prince. So there'll be uh, this 69 sevens before he comes. Shall be seven weeks, three score, two weeks, basically 62 weeks or 62 prophetic years. It shall be built again with street and moat or wall, even in troublesome times. And so it's starting to say, okay, this thing is going to be broken up. And so if you turn to your next page, I want to show you how it's broken up real quick. And um, it takes a little bit of math, but you'll see what Daniel's trying to do. The first thing is it gets broken up into seven sevens, or 49 prophetic years of the 490 years. This is a subdivision, and it, it notice it says to be built again with street, moat, even in troublesome times. That's referring to Jerusalem. That was done um, in the post-exilic time, and they rebuilt Jerusalem. That was what happened. It took them for 49 years to do this. And then, if you go to letter B, there's a second segment with no break in between the 49 years and the 434 years, and it says... 62 sevens or 434 years, that's the title. This is the second subdivision of the seven sevens, and it basically comprises 434 years, okay? And you can read all that. Basically, when you add 49 years and 434 years, you get a total of 483 years 
before Messiah comes. So that must be accomplished. So did that happen? Yes, it happened. And then exactly to that prophetic year, Messiah came on the scene. He started his ministry. And you end up somewhere around 27 A.D., Okay, you in 26, 27 AD is where it gets you. Now, I don't want to go through all the calculations. I might bring that in next week because it gets very, very complicated. You have to assume all kinds of leap years. You, it's, it's, it's Jewish calendar. You can't go by Gregorian. You can't go by, uh, Ptolemy's calendar. It's very complicated. But I might show you next week how we arrive at this. But it does work out to around the time Jesus started his ministry. And Messiah is on the scene. And so, it, it, this is why the, the Magi had an, a good idea that things were getting ready to happen because they had Daniel's countdown. And they apparently were taught by Daniel how to understand this. And this is why Messiah chastised Israel and said, if you knew the day in which I come. And because they didn't. And he kept telling the Pharisees, you can discern the signs of the times in the in the weather, but you can't discern the signs of the times. He's talking about himself being here. You should already know, according to Daniel, that I should be here. You should know that Messiah should be on the ground, on planet Earth. And they didn't. Okay. I'll give you some more information next week about that, because it's hard to understand, and I've got to show a breakdown of that a little bit. But I want to go to number five real quick. And it talks about the events between the 69th and 70th sevens. And it says, after the threescore and two weeks shall be anointed one be cut off. Talking about Messiah being killed. So this is talking about events between uh, the 483 years and the last seven years. Okay, The prince and the people of the prince shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's talking about the destruction of the temple. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, talking about a great army. We'll talk a little bit more about this. <clears throat> and even until the end shall be war, war in Israel, and desolations are determined, basically, for Israel. Okay. So what is happening here in Daniel is that these, these years are going to 483 years without a gap, and then he is basically stopping and saying, between 483 years and the last seven years of the prophetic 490 years, there is a gap. There is a major gap. And in that gap, several things will happen between those prophetic years. So if he's talking about a timeout. We're in the timeout right now. We're in that time where the gap is. And and so uh, we want to talk a little bit about those events in the gap. So if you go to letter A on page 194, the first event that will happen in the gap is that Messiah will be killed. That's the term cut off. This occurred in A.D. 30 approximately, and this is about 35 years after the birth of Messiah. And, and basically the idea of how nothing, it means nothingness, it means a state of death. Uh, but it, then it says, he will be cut off, but not for himself. Now that's interesting. Why does Daniel throw that in? It means that Messiah will die for people, for others. Not for himself, not anything he did. He will die for what other people did. Which is a, a hint of the atonement. That Messiah will make atonement. And so we obviously know that. That, that already happened. Messiah did die, he rose from the dead. 
B, the next thing Daniel predicts is the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And he says the people of the prince, the prince there is not Messiah, but Antichrist. Because he will, he'll later mention Antichrist. So the people of the prince, who are the people? The Romans, more specifically Gentiles, shall come, shall, uh, uh, shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. The, the term flood is always a military invasion. A military invasion. So he says, the second thing's gonna happen is Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed and the temple's destroyed. Okay, why did that happen? Daniel says this will happen, but we have studied in other passages why this happens. Why is the temple destroyed and Jerusalem destroyed? The judgment, the judgment for rejecting Messiah. It's called the unpardonable sin. It's a national sin, and from other passages we know that it must happen because of the rejection of Messiah by Israel. And so they were given 40 years to repent. He dies in 30. They're judged in 70. How many years? 40. The time of testing. They were given 40 years. The early church witnessed to Jerusalem and witnessed to the Jews. And they, they got a remnant out of it. But for those who didn't, were destroyed. Josephus remarks that there was 1.2 million Jews killed by the Romans. And they sacked the temple, and as Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. And so they burnt the temple down, they burnt the, the whole area down, and what ended up happening is the gold from the temple melted into the cracks of the stones. By that doing, by, by that happening, the Roman soldiers then looted the temple, and the way they looted it is to get into the cracks of the stone, they went in there and cracked the stones open, and left the place with not one stone left on another to get the gold out of the stones. Thus, fulfilling prophecy, exactly how Messiah said would happen to the Messiah, to the disciples he told. So that would happen. And if you go to letter C on the next page, a continuing war. He mentions that even unto the end shall be war. Now, what it's talking about is the Haaretz, the land of Israel, will see war until the end. And my friends, that is exactly what we have seen in the last 2,000 years, and specifically since 1948. There has been war upon war in that land. Even during the Crusades, even during when the, the Turks and, and the, the Muslims controlled er, the area, it has, it has not seen anything but war. And now even more, look at today what's happening. Exactly predicted by Messiah. And he goes, the results basically, if you continue watching that, he goes, as the result of the wars, desolations are determined, which is a reference to the land and decreed by God, which the Jews would be out of the land. They're, the land would be desolate without Jews. And it was. since 19, uh, Until 1948, it was, the land was desolate. Uh, the Jews were scattered all over the planet. And what has happened? They have come back. The end of the desolations have happened. So that means we're close. Okay, so I want to stop there. There's any questions so far? Next week, I'm going to show you a timeline about the 70th week so you can see it and how it works out because it's, it's, it's a little complicated sometimes. But I will say this, once you work it all out, it is to the 
guarantee when Messiah would show up, when he would be crucified, absolutely brilliant, absolutely amazing, supernatural. Let's take a break and we'll come back and do Foot's uh, Life on the Messiah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoy this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.